Due to the graphic nature of this urban legend, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of gore and body horror. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It starts with a goodbye kiss, a promise to be back soon, the too loud slam of a car door, the love of your life heading off into the dark. It ends with a severed head, a hanging corpse, and a plea to keep you from looking. But why does it matter? He's already dead. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, we take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth and share their stories. This episode is part of our Urban Legends Halloween special. Every day for the month of October, we're presenting our spooky spin on an urban legend, then diving into the history of the horror. Like it or not, each terrifying tale contains a grain of truth. You can find episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Haunted Places for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. Today, we examine one of the oldest Lover's Lane urban legends. The outcome is in the title, The Boyfriend's Death. But this tale never fails to chill American and European teenagers, thanks to its all-too-familiar premise, a couple caught in the middle of nowhere when a killer chooses to strike. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. In 1956, America got a little smaller. The Federal Aid Highway Act funded a system of interstate roadways spider-webbing across the country, connecting small towns to large ones, big states to small. But easier travel means more strangers, and the boyfriend's death is a virtual checklist of every fear your mother had when you said you were only going out for a drive. Even 30 years later, in the late 1980s, those fears remained in full force. Grace had to pee. She argued that it was a perfectly reasonable issue. Everyone has to pee at 2 a.m. That was just science. It wasn't her fault that they happened to be in the car when they were supposed to have reached the motel hours ago. She refused to go in the woods, so Tim would have to find somewhere they could stop. Twenty torturous minutes later, she finally saw her salvation. A blue sign advertising a gas station at the next exit. Tim took the turn, mentioning that they were running low on gas anyways. She had expected a glowing beacon in the black of night, but all she got was a dim, flickering light 
and the smallest convenience store she'd ever seen. Tim pulled up to one of the gas pumps. The nozzle was covered with a grocery bag. He pulled forward to the next pump, but there was a grocery bag covering that one as well. Grace could not wait for him to find a functioning station. She needed to go now. He parked in front of the store and she jumped out. She raced inside and booked it for the back of the store, feeling her bladder twitch with every movement. It was locked. She hit the door, frustrated. She would probably pee herself before she could make it to the counter and back again. But there were no other options. So she clenched her legs together and forced a smile to her face as she approached the register. The clerk was nearing his 50s and balding. When he smiled at her, she could see several holes where teeth should be. His eyes lingered on her chest. She asked him for the bathroom key. He gave her a long look before turning away. She worried at first that he was ignoring her, but then he slowly walked towards the back desk. Hearing the tinny bell, Grace turned to see a confused-looking Tim enter the store. He walked over to her and kissed her on the forehead. She leaned into him as she waited for the man to come back with the key. There was a round mirror perched in the top right of the clerk's booth. She checked her hair in it, only to catch the clerk's dead-eyed gaze watching her from the side of the mirror. His muddy green eyes cataloged her every feature, as if he could possess her by looking. She jumped back and cursed herself, feeling her bladder ache from the sudden movement. Tim asked what was wrong, but she just shook her head. The clerk turned, handing her the key. She flashed an uneasy smile at him before heading back towards the bathroom. She could hear Tim asking about gasoline, but she didn't hear what the creepy man said in response. She didn't care right now anyway. Grace stuck the key in the lock and wanted to cry with relief when the door opened. She emptied her bladder, flushed, and turned towards the sink to wash her hands. It was only after her insides had been taken care of that she noticed the grime in the bathroom. The tiles might have once been white, but now they were a deep gray, flecked with what she hoped was rust. Pieces of toilet paper were stuck to the floor. The walls were covered in handwritten advertisements for drugs and good times. Grace washed her hands a second time, just to be safe. She reached into her bag for some tissues so she wouldn't have to touch the grimy door handle. She opened the door and came face to face with the clerk. He asked if the facilities were to her liking. Grace said they were fine and handed him the key. He refused to move, so she did her best to squeeze past him. He moved closer. Tim called her name, and the other man stepped back half a step. Grace pushed forward, meeting Tim at the door. He carried a couple of bottles of water and a few bags of chips for them. He nodded his head to her, 
the universal symbol for let's go. Grace followed after Tim, fighting the shiver racing through her. She could still feel the clerk's eyes on her. It made her want to wash her hands again. Tim put his arm around her again, protective but subtle. They headed for the door and kept walking, as the man warned them to be careful out there. Tim dropped the snacks in the back before getting into the driver's seat. They left as quickly as they'd come. Grace asked about the gas, but Tim shook his head. The clerk said they were all out. They tried to laugh about how odd the man had been. Grace met Tim's gaze for a moment as he checked the side mirror. She thanked him for intervening for her, only half-teasingly calling him her hero. Tim was sure there'd be a few more gas stations on the way home. She kept her eyes peeled, but the few blue signs they passed advertised lodging and rest stops. No gas stations. Grace watched as the gas needle dropped lower and lower. It finally fell to the tiny E for empty. Tim pulled to the side of the road, beneath the tallest tree in the surrounding woods. She hadn't bothered to look at the clock while it was on to see what time it was. The road was dark, the only light coming from a sliver of moon high above the trees. They hadn't passed a single car while they'd been searching for gas. Tim hopped out and opened the trunk. He was going to walk back to the gas station and hopefully get directions to a functioning gas pump. An image of the clerk with the leering eyes entered her mind. She didn't like the idea of Tim going back alone. She offered to go with him. He shook his head. He was worried about the safety of the car and could tell she was tired. He told her to trust him. He was her hero, right? Tim removed an empty gas can from the back and came around to her side. As she went to open the door, he put a hand out to keep it closed. He mimed rolling down the windows, and she turned the little hand crank until they were face to face again. He told her to keep the car locked and try to get some sleep. She caught his arm as he turned away, clinging to the gray college sweatshirt she'd bought him. The softness was soothing familiar. Tim leaned down, drawing her into a deep, comforting kiss. He pulled away gently, gave her a little mock salute, and then he was off. Grace had no idea how long the walk would take, or even how many miles away they were from the gas station. She rolled up the window and watched him head further into the night a slowly shrinking shadow puppet in the low light. Grace kept searching for him long after his tiny silhouette faded into the distance. Anxiety gnawed at her nerves, but she couldn't start out after him now. All she could do was wait. Grace clicked on the overhead light and dug a paperback copy of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark out of her bag. Tim always teased her that she was too old for those kinds of stories, but she liked them. Just enough creep to keep her engaged without bringing on nightmares. 
and this situation called for a distraction. Without the book, she'd be stuck dreaming up worst-case scenarios. Something scraped against the roof of the car. The wind blew. An owl screamed somewhere in the dark. It was impossible to immerse herself in words over the strange primal din. She looked out the window. There were several branches hanging over the top of the car, likely scraping the metal shell. Grace readjusted in her seat and kept her eyes firmly planted on the words in front of her. As she was starting to get absorbed in the story, a soft light crept through the woods, weaving in and out of the trees. Grace squinted and leaned forward, trying to make sense of the strange movement. One light became two as it came closer. A car! She rolled down the window and waved her hand, but the driver didn't appear to see her as it sped up, moving past her. Grace exited the car and ran out into the middle of the road. She raised her arms high over her head, jumping up and down to try to catch their attention. They didn't stop. When the light had faded into the distance, she trudged back towards the passenger side. She didn't see the figure crouching in the weeds beside the car, studying her as a cat does his prey. Up next, Grace struggles to stay awake, unaware of the danger that lurks nearby. Now, back to the story. Grace shook her head as she walked back towards the car, wondering how long Tim had been gone. The gas station couldn't have been that far, could it? She had no idea. Time and space seemed to shrink and expand in the early morning dark. She had never felt so alone. She folded herself into the front seat and leaned forward to pick up her book. A slow scratch tore across the roof. She jumped in her seat, slamming her head against the dashboard. That stupid branch was going to be the death of her. She saw stars for a moment, but when the white glow faded, all she saw were dark trees against the night sky. Grace flipped down the sun visor and looked at her face in the mirror with its tiny lights on either side. There was a small red spot on her forehead, but she would be fine. She played with her hair, pushing it forwards and back to hide the spot on her head. Another head popped up in the mirror. Tim. Grace turned around, but her back seat was empty. There was no one there. She was losing her mind in the darkness. She shut the mirror and slid down in her seat, waiting for Tim to return. As keyed up as she was, fatigue was starting to take hold. A burning weight clawed at her eyelids. She wanted desperately to sleep, but the grating, horrible, endless sound of the branch scraping the roof of the car tore at her nerves. Her gaze fell to the ugly, torn-up carpet beneath her feet. She studied the threads, trying to block out the horrible sound. 
Tim had been promising to replace it since they started dating nearly two years ago. She wanted him back here. She wanted him to come through the woods with a full gas can and drive them back to the comfort of the city. No lake trip was worth this kind of hassle. Grace balled her hands into fists. She wanted the scraping to stop, needed it to stop. She hit the dashboard with her hand. Suddenly, the scratching ceased. She hadn't heard the wind shift, but she was too relieved to investigate. Grace closed her eyes and rested her head against the back of the seat. It was late. She was upset. She just needed to take a nap. Tim would be back soon, and she was so, so tired. She heard a thump at the back of the car and opened her bleary eyes. She couldn't see anything except her eyelashes, which her half-awake brain told her were thin legs of a spider perched just above her vision. The scratching echoed around the car's cabin, but she wasn't sure if it was outside or in her own mind. She let the exhaustion take hold again. Her eyes closed. Red and blue lights swirled around her. For a second, Grace worried that she had truly lost touch with reality. The trees above loomed like reaching hands, grasping at the bright light as it went from pale blue to blood red. She was still rubbing her eyes when a flashlight knocked against her window. She smiled politely at the officer as she rolled it down. He introduced himself as Officer Glenn, then he asked her what she was doing out here, alone, at night. She told him about Tim and his quest for gas. Officer Glenn asked her for a physical description. She couldn't remember the color of his shirt, but the rest came easily to her. As she spoke, his eyes kept drifting just above her. She figured he was just tired. Maybe he didn't believe her. She was clearly from out of town. Officer Glenn studied her for a moment and then looked back at the sky. She asked him what was wrong, but he ignored her. She tried to look above him, but she couldn't see anything except the tree branches, still swaying in the wind. Officer Glenn asked her to step out of the car. He pointed to his cruiser maybe 10 feet ahead of them and told her to climb into the back. She wasn't under arrest, he said. They just needed to get her home. Grace politely declined. The officer told her that Tim had sent the cops for her. She didn't believe him, but he was the one with the gun on his belt. All she had was a horror paperback and a fairly light handbag. Officer Glenn told her that she needed to keep her eyes ahead no looking back. She opened the door and started to bend down to pick up her belongings. He said he'd get them for her. She just needed to go to the car. Unease twisted her stomach. Every instinct screamed to look behind her. The road had been clear when she was awake. If something had happened, she had a right to know about it. She stopped. 
Officer Glenn asked her to please keep walking towards the car. Maybe she should have listened to him. But she'd listened to Tim when he told her to wait. And she'd had enough of being told what to do for one night. She pivoted on her feet, about to tell Officer Glenn exactly what she thought of his patriarchal... Her voice caught in her throat. Tears welled in her eyes. She wanted to look away, but she couldn't. A headless corpse was hanging over the car, tied to a series of tree branches. His fingers were just touching the top of the car. His shirt appeared red at first, but when she looked closer, she saw the varsity lettering, the stained heather gray. It was Tim. The wind swayed, and she heard that god-awful noise again. It was Tim's limp fingernails on the metal. He had been above her while she slept. But the sound had stopped. She swallowed. Why had it stopped? Her knees quaked, but she stood tall. Grace took two unsteady steps towards the car. Officer Glenn came towards her, his arms outstretched, trying to intervene. She refused to let him block her view. Tim's head was run through the back antenna of the car. His eyes and mouth were still open wide with horror. A smiling man emerged beside the grisly sight. He leered at her, his eyes hungry and joyful. Officer Glenn didn't see him until it was too late. The first written account of the boyfriend's death was recorded by folklorist Daniel R. Barnes at the University of Kansas in 1964. Freshman recounted the story as an explanation for why a nearby area was called Hangman's Road. Another telling comes from a group of Navajo middle school students in 1976, Arizona. They describe the killer as a skinwalker, a shape-shifting witch who has been corrupted in their pursuit of evil magic. In this version, the victims are two teenagers on their way to a dance. Their car runs out of gas, and the boy walks down the road in search of fuel, only to be beheaded by the killer. This version is also notable because it incorporates a frequent motif in other urban legends, a radio announcement that a killer is on the loose. By the 1970s, the story had spread across the globe, making a few changes along the way. While the American version has the cops playing a role in the woman discovering that her boyfriend is dead, the European version is slightly more sinister. It ends with a madman holding the head as he bangs it on the car. Like many good works of fiction, the boyfriend's death has its roots in reality. Almost every town has a lover's lane a secluded place where couples can conduct dalliances away from prying eyes. But this seclusion also makes the area an easy target for low-level robbery, assault, and occasionally 
murder. In 1930, the 3X killer used Lover's Lane as a hunting ground in Queens, New York. Similar cases can be found near Trenton, New Jersey in the early 1940s and in Texarkana, Texas in 1946. Several later serial murders follow the same pattern, most notably the Zodiac Killer, who began to take credit for Lover's Lane killings in 1969. But this story endures for a number of reasons beyond its true story counterparts. Folklorist Jan Harold Brunvand describes the boyfriend's death as working on multiple levels. At its most straightforward, the story is a simple warning for couples to be more mindful of where they park. But the story also works on a societal level, speaking to the particular fears of being alone or around strangers. He notes that this fear is particularly potent in young women, its prime demographic. The damsel is a cornerstone of the story, making it into every variation, while the reason for being abandoned, method of murder, discovery, and rescuer all change. She is one of the original final girls in the horror genre, a survivor facing a horror the authorities don't want her to see. But she must look back, like the myth of Orpheus. We all look back eventually. And when we do, we never sleep again. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back tomorrow with a new urban legend, and on Thursday with a new haunted place. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app and type Haunted Places in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Until tomorrow, don't believe some of the things you hear. Believe all of them. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Richet. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>